When humans are at our best, it's when we feel connected to others. We sometimes forget that the most important way that people feel bonded to those around them, that they feel part of something, is not through technology, but through humanity. Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Well, I am very excited to talk to our next guest, Bruce Daisley. He is a best-selling author and a technology leader from the United Kingdom. He's currently the EMEA Vice President for Twitter. That's Europe, Middle East, and Africa. He's also worked for Google and YouTube, other names that I hope everyone is familiar with or you've been living under a rock. His 2019 book, The Joy of Work, was all about improving work culture, and he now has a new book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. That doesn't sound very motivating. <laughs> Eat, sleep, work, repeat. But it's the subtitle that got me to 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. He's a compelling speaker. I've watched his speeches. He shares many ideas that will help change you and your workplace. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to chat to you. Well, we're glad to talk to you, and I may ask you about topics that cross between both of your books. But before we let you share anything earth-shattering, right up front in your book, you say something that I had to take issue with right away, which is this. You said, CEOs don't read books like this. They send themselves to seminars costing thousands of dollars. And so I'm like, wait, hey, hold up. I'm a CEO, <laughs> and I'm reading this book. So I had to laugh. But seriously, it's a joke, but why? why is that? I mean, when it's critically important to invest in people, when bringing joy to work is what allows people to reach their full potential, why is it that every CEO and leaders are not reading books like this every week? Yeah, I, th I think there's a common preconception amongst a lot of leaders right now that the, the burden is on the leader to come up with the good ideas. And so you get a lot of leader literature, a lot of um, those books that you see in airports that are filled with ways for a leader to have superpowers, to be the chosen one, to be the person who transforms their company or their team's success. And I think to some extent, that's shaped by the stories we love telling. We love the story of Steve Jobs coming back to Apple. We love the story of Elon Musk, this sort of superhero character, transforming the successes of his businesses. And I think as a consequence of that, it encourages leaders to believe that their success is going to, to deliver their team from their, their current situations. And that's why I tend to think that things that are more about the energy of teams, things that are more about our own personal levels, dealing with our own personal levels of burnout, are probably less commonly the sort of books that leaders read. Mm, that's good because leaders aren't allowed to have burnout today, right? And that myth. Exactly that. That myth that leaders need to be trying to eke out every last drop of productivity from, from the moments they're working. This notion that, you know, every waking minute we should be trying to be as successful as possible, as trying to, to set ourselves up to be as productive as we possibly can be. And that that's the the onus, the the unreasonable expectation on leaders right now. That is so true. And Bruce, you're allowing me to stop doing the 
the uh, push-ups that I was doing as you were answering the question to, to fit that in. It to, is crazy. I chatted to a guy recently and he had, um, he just had the most extraordinary schedule. He, he told me he was getting up at 4.30 a.m. and he was doing his exercises before before 5.30. And it just struck me. I just said to him, it just doesn't sound very happy. Um, but I think a lot of us worry that, that maybe we're we're not going to accomplish what we we believe we're capable of achieving, unless we're trying to to have that hustle mentality, unless we're trying to just be as as superpowered as we possibly can be. Well, it it leads into a big theme of your new book and your speeches and things that I've heard you say and that I'm reading, and and you know whether it's too much, just too many hours in the week that we're working, or just this constant connection. We are just exhausted. How did it get this way? And how did burnout become the norm that we accept? Yeah, well, these, I think there's an increasing sense that people feel like they need to be working all the hours they possibly can. And, and it's not helped by, you know, when I when I was putting this book together, my, my uh, potential audience was probably someone in their 20s or maybe early 30s. And increasingly, those people are... Saddled with a lot of college debt, they maybe are looking at the property ladder, wondering if they'll ever really accomplish their, getting there to, to where they want to be. And one of the things that we find when we're not achieving what we want to achieve ourselves, we start thinking, is this down to me? Do I need to work harder? I think, you know, right now, we, we're surrounded, all of us are surrounded with opportunities to compare our lives to the lives of others. And the, the first instinct that a lot of people reach for when they think that maybe then they're not as accomplished as they could be, they think, oh, right, this is down to me. I, I need to be achieving more in my career. And this notion of a career is very much sort of a late 20th century, early 21st century creation. But this this notion that we need to be trying to each year get better and better and, and achieve more seems to be the, the, the super highway that's taking us towards burnout. It sure is. And when we think about burnout, another thing that we think about is sleep. And you talk about sleep and it's another one of those myths, like you're never allowed to sleep and you have to be on this treadmill, both for your career and everything you just said. You also have this incredible schedule busy executive, speaking, writing, multiple hats, all the things that you do. How do you get enough sleep? What, what tips do you have for someone who's you know really stressed, doing a lot of things, but knows that rest is important? For me, reminding myself of the importance of sleep has allowed me to make edge decisions in a different way. So for my own mental well-being, I love running. I, I sort of discovered it late in life, but I like running sort of six miles uh, four or five times a week. And I find I use it as my commute to work, but I find that it puts me in a good place. But when I'm, when I'm traveling, one of the edge decisions I often have to make is should I go running or should I try to, to get seven and a half, eight hours sleep a night? And for a long time, I would always optimize for the, the exercise. And increasingly, I've, I've optimized for the sleep just because the amount of evidence that's being presented to us about the power of sleep just seems overwhelming. And there's, there's more and more evidence gathered all the time. Uh, the way that Matthew Walker, the, the uh, 
probably the, the leading sleep expert in the world describes it. He says, if you were told about a performance enhancing substance that imp- reduce your likelihood of getting degenerative brain disease, reduce your likelihood of getting common cold or, or heart disease, and you discovered that that not only made you happier, but it improved your memory. You'd be asking how much it cost. And the fact it's free and so remarkably enjoyable, it's just extraordinary that we we elect not to have so much sleep. Yeah, we would probably take it easily if it was a pill, but going to sleep Very much seems- so. And it's at odds with this leadership myth. I think that's part of it. This mindset of I'm not allowed to rest. I'm, I'm doing something wrong if I if I do that. Well, you also talk about great recharges in your new book, and and I love them. I'd love for you to share one of your recharges. Maybe those who haven't read the book yet, Monk Mode Morning. What is that? Yeah, I'll take a step back. The, the, my perspective on writing this book was that I wrote a book that was very much intended to help I started from my own perspective as someone who wanted to improve my workplace culture. And as someone who'd worked in extraordinarily wonderful environments and then environments that almost had affluenza, they had material benefits, but they just didn't seem happy. They We were surrounded with the most extraordinary perks and yet everyone seemed dead-eyed and demotivated. And so I was fascinated as a team leader myself, as a, a person responsible for people. I was, I was interested how we could get back to, to a good workplace culture. And quite often when you reach for literature on workplace cultures and you reach for literature, books on, you know, airport books on how to make a better culture, the one thing you're often presented with is the idea that you need, you need to answer this question of purpose. You need to, to answer the question why. Why are you doing uh, this job? And what I found was that even though my objective was to try and improve the workplace culture, there was no issue with people feeling disconnected from the purpose of the organization. They just felt their own burnout was just the abiding experience of their day-to-day job. And so this is what I found. I found, okay, if I'm going to improve the culture around here, actually some of the changes that I need to enact are rather more prosaic. They're they're rather more mundane. And so this is how I I started the book with um, a series of, of 12 interventions that we can make. And one of them is this monk mode morning. And monk mode mornings, I think, are a recognition that the way that we're increasingly working, that staccato, um, constant interruption, constantly interrupted pattern of work is deeply dissatisfying. Normally, if you ask people, if you survey people when they've had a good day at work, they generally say they've had a good day at work when they've made meaningful progress in something. I think most of us would recognize that, but say that that's not something that we are experiencing ourselves in our day-to-day jobs. And so the idea of a monk mode morning is, can you put, even before you open your email application, before you you crank open your your laptop, um, can you put 90 minutes on the calendar where you aim to get something done with no interruptions? And it seems that interruptions have this um, almost clouding effect. So the the moment we allow ourselves to start thinking of emails, the the moment we start checking Slack messages, it seems to uh, take some of our concentration away, the the magical thing that we've got in our brains. And so for a lot of people, just setting aside 90 minutes once a week or twice a week seems to be one of these 
uh, most extraordinarily powerful things we can do to supercharge our own schedules and, and just achieve more. So well said. And I'm thinking about that staccato constant interruption and that difference between a, a monk mode morning. It, it's easy to say, and it's easy to to talk about this practice. I think it's just so extraordinarily difficult to do. And it's that that hit. I mean, they the 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 brain science shows, right? It's it's like almost a drug hit of that constant, you know, ding, here's the email. I have to get into it. I have to see it. And so do you find that highly productive executives, leaders, up and coming people have this desire to maybe put something like that into practice, but this constant pull? And how do you overcome that? Yeah. I think this is the reason why the monk mode is is an attempt to understand that and to, to deal with that. So the idea of the monk mode morning is is that you genuinely set out to do this before anything at the start of the day. The way my colleague does it is he has a, a devilish commute from a, a far-flung uh, part of of the the country that he he has a long commute in, and so he's just made it known to a couple of people in the team that one day a week he's going to rather than get the seven a.m. train and arrive at the office um, sort of crushed by by his commute, he's going to get the eight o'clock train, and that affords him ninety minutes a long commute, like I say, sitting at a table on his uh, train. It means, however, that he doesn't arrive into the office till till after 10 a.m. Now, he, that's his little hack. Now that he's let people know, I'm going to be in at a time that might seem superficially like I'm slacking. But in fact, because I've got a quieter train, I can get a table, I can sit there, I can do work. But it is, it is escape time. It's the moment that he can really get lost in these thoughts. And so quite often when we look into the research of people who've explored ways of working better, what they, one thing they discover, one thing they point out quite often is that we do appear to make these small dents in, in the demands of work. And that might be a client that we deal with that is incredibly demanding, or it might be a boss that makes uh, excessive demands upon us. And when researchers have asked people to to maybe try and renegotiate some of the terms of, of how they work, quite often they've found that bosses and clients are rather more willing than we we might otherwise have thought of agreeing these little adaptations. So like my colleague who who sets out on the later train, the monk mode morning is an attempt to, to recognize that most of us, if we try and pause and do something different away from our desks at 3 p.m., we might struggle. But if you do it at 9 a.m., you might achieve more success. And I think it's these little adaptations that seem to work that prove to be the most effective hacks. Yeah, that deep thinking that you can do only in those moments Very is much so... Incredible. And I love what you just said because it is these little shifts that make such a difference. It doesn't always have to be so radical. Well, one of the things that people would be surprised, well, many things surprised about your hacks and ideas, you're a technology executive, worked for the big names, but you advocate taking a digital Sabbath. And that's also unusual to to have that kind of the same idea of these these times away. Um, I was also struck, I, I heard you uh, give a speech where you were talking about how we let these devices come into our lives with email and it just added two hours a day to uh, our work. And it, it's funny because people feel guilty if they take that later train, right, to get in a little later. But for some reason, we didn't 
get this corresponding credit when we added two hours <laughs> a day to our workday when we added these devices. So it's it's interesting yeah. how we 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 kind of adopt someone that. someone used a term to me that was so vivid that it, it's really colored my thinking that someone said to me he's he's the guy he runs a, a crowd-funded uh, publishing company but he said i think i'm one of the good guys but he said inside of me is an 18th century mill owner that when someone comes into the office at 10 a.m or 11 a.m i immediately the good person inside me disappears and this mill owner starts thinking, right, that's it, is it? You're not working hard enough. Or if, if he glances across the office at 4 p.m. and there's no one there, he immediately, there's something visceral in him that thinks, that's it, people, people are exploiting me. They're not working as hard as they want to be. And he described it as a, an 18th century mill owner. And I thought, yeah, I can see that. There's moments in me too. I think I'm one of the good guys, but I think all of us find ourselves at times saying half day uh, to someone who's arrived at, at 10.30 or glad you joined us when someone gets up to, to leave at four. And the, the one thing that's almost indisputably true is if someone is getting up to leave their, from their office at 4.30 or four o'clock on a, on a weekday, almost certainly they're feeling immensely self-conscious that where they're going might, be, might make them look lazy and indolent to their colleagues. And almost without exception, um, they're thinking those things. And if we create a culture where the, the evil mill owner wins, if we create a culture where the, the mill owner sort of making these snippy comments wins, then effectively most people will feel like they can't do their job, probably in the way that they would most suit their talents. So good. You know, I also think a bit about it from the other angle. One company I was leading, I was moved. My family hadn't moved there yet. I had nothing to do, nowhere to go, didn't know anyone. So I was working really, really late. And I noticed like everybody was working late. And I'm like, why, why is everybody still here? And somebody whispered to me, until you leave, nobody feels like they can leave as the new leader. And so I started doing something else where I would drive away, park in a different place and come back in a different office door because it's that signal. And it's, it's this weird, understated contract that people don't realize when in fact, really it doesn't matter, right? Just get the work done and go home and enjoy your life. And, and certainly we know that work follows you home. And so it's not as if if you left at four that you wouldn't be... Um, probably still involved. So I, I'm really I'm fat. loving this idea of you leaving, putting on a different jacket and hat and coming back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not? I mean, I didn't want to signal that that hours in matter, right? Because it doesn't. How many hours you work doesn't matter. What matters is effectiveness. Well it's interesting you some... say that because these um that for me was such a curiosity. So I started from the position. I started writing this book from someone who was, uh, you know, what an honor to, to work at some, some of the biggest technology companies in the world. But what was witnessing around me was that the, my colleagues were showing signs of burnout and exhaustion. And so I set about thinking there must be some science, some evidence on how we can improve this. And, and you know, if I'm witnessing this toll on the people around me, then this must be far more universal than maybe we're sort of immediately recognizing. But one of the things you immediately observe is you have people like Elon Musk or the former CEO of Yahoo, Marissa Meyer. And they, both of those individuals have incredibly successful um, 
and uh, both of them have been sort of asked the secret of their success, and and they've each said it's working 120 hours a week. So I I was became curious in my journey if there was evidence that working 120 hours a week was the secret of success, then at the very least, it would be good for us to know the source of that, understand the circumstances. So I started investigating it. Well, there is a lot of research that's done into how our productivity changes over the amount of time we work. Biggest survey ever conducted into this was conducted into physical work. And the the guy who did it, John Penkerville from Stanford University, he conducted a piece of work trying to understand, looking at the working week, when was productivity at at his highest? What he discovered was if you're doing an an average working week of over 55 hours a week, uh, your productivity is lower than if you stopped at 50 hours. Effectively, 55 hours is this sort of peak. Beyond that, our our fatigue kicks in. We're not actually producing as much. Then I was interested, okay, so that's physical labor. Physical labor seems to peak at around 50 to 55 hours a week. What about mental labor? Because if Elon Musk or Marissa Meyer are working 120 hours a week, do they not have any sense that there's an optimal? Well, it seems like there's there's some really good evidence on this too. And the, the science of this suggests that our brains are far more finite than we give them credit. And if you've ever found yourselves coming home from work and your, your partner immediately asks you a question or you're, you're, uh, at the end of the day, you get a text from someone asking you to make a decision, then you might be the uh, a classic example of this. So, in fact, there's really strong evidence that the reason why we reach for the, the cookie jar at 10 p.m. but not 10 a.m., is because we've burnt through some of our decision-making. Our brain no longer has that willpower, the resistance. And so it seems that when you hear people like Elon Musk, when you hear these, these superheroes talking about long working hours, it's an illusion to some extent. If we're trying to do our best work, the best way to think about our brains is far more like the battery on our phone. It's finite. It's zero sum. I, I heard a wonderful story about... Um, the uh, about Barack Obama when he was president. The, he used to have someone who followed him round, just preventing him making trivial decisions. Why? Because actually the evidence is that our cognitive power is finite. So if, if he's spending a long time every day debating whether it's turkey or a ham sandwich or whatever it is, then he's wasting some of that finite attention span. And um, the more that we treat our brains as finite, I saw Jeff Bezos was quoted as saying he thinks a good day is making three decisions. That's interesting. I think there's far more truth in the three decisions model, far more truth in this finite cognitive capital model than there is in this idea that we can work 120 hours a week and it's of equal and high quality. Bruce, I love all of that. And I've read so much of that research and and the decision making and and just being up you know, you're just done with decisions at a certain point. And yet the juxtaposition against that, what you started out talking about that superhero concept, I think so many people think, yeah, that's the research and, and, and Bruce, sure, the average person can only work this much or the average person needs this much sleep or the average, but I'm not average, Bruce, I'm a superhero. And it's that um, delusion, if you will, uh, almost self-delusion to think, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the norm. I'm, I'm better. I'm this, that, and the other. And I really can work 120 hours a week. And I think then 
it does diminish the genius and right. maybe explain some investor phone calls too. That's right. So. I saw, I heard a wonderful story. And I think the moment we start being honest with ourselves, we start learning how to take advantage of these things. And so uh, most of us might think that our best ideas come running between meetings, answering emails, and then we we type, we we think of a great idea and we, we type it into our, our laptops. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, our best ideas haven't come with those tiny little fragments of attention. Our best ideas generally come either when we've thought about something for a long time and we're reflecting on it, or often they happen. Um, interestingly, they often happen in this state of mind called the default mode. Now, the default mode is a really interesting function in the brain, which is often, uh, interestingly, you, you sort of get in the default mode most commonly when you're in a state of boredom. As we sit here in 2020, I think most of us would agree that boredom is something that we remember from our childhood, but it, it doesn't really play a part in our modern lives so much. And But it seems like boredom is an incredibly um, productive, ideas-filled moment in our lives. And my favorite example of this, so you know, thinking of, of when we get into those those states where an idea just seems to assail us. It seems to come out of nowhere. And um, I, I was reading something about the screenwriter, uh, Aaron Sorkin. Now, Aaron Sorkin is, I mean, he's in incredibly successful. He's, he's written uh, films, TV, Broadway shows. Probably Moneyball is his most recent uh, successful film, but he's also done things like The West Wing. And he realized he was having his best ideas. He's famous for incredibly sparky, witty dialogue. He realized he was having his best ideas, not while he was frowning into his laptop, not while he was sitting at his computer trying to come up with something. He realized he was having his best ideas when he was in the shower. He had a shower installed in the corner of his office. He says he has six to eight showers a day. Right. Interesting, because the moment we start thinking about how um, our brains actually work, it enables us to adapt our working environment so we can best adapt to that. And I think the, the issue for a lot of us is that we do believe that we need to be a little bit more productive than we currently are. We, we need to be uh, trying to work a little bit harder than we worked this year. And it may well be at the expense of us getting more ideas. In fact, the, the moment I discovered this default mode is where a lot of us have creative ideas. You start observing things that people say. A lot of people in, in my profession, a lot of people who I meet, they say, you know, last time I went on vacation, I had so many good ideas. People say, you know, I, I couldn't stop. I was, I was coming up with these good, good ideas. And it's largely a reflection that while we're working as hard as we're working and, you know, we're taking less vacation and when we get to vacation, we're in a state of sort of broken exhaustion. What we're, what we're discovering is our default mode is being squeezed away. And so the more that we recognize that and the more we're honest with ourselves, the more we can get back to, to actually finding our, our magical creative version of ourselves that once existed. Oh, that's really amazing. That's so good. So good. You know, as you're thinking about boredom and kind of opposite of boredom is when you're in a highly energized state, you you share in this book, you're talking a lot about teams and how to how to get your team to a buzz state of positive energy, you say. And one of the ways you uh, advocate for doing that is a hack week. 
I'd love for you to share a little bit about a hack week. Well, we're so honored at Twitter, where I, I work, that to a large extent, the, the organization, the company that you understand now, was entirely created by a hack week. So Twitter had was once an organization called Odeo that was a podcasting app. And um, when Apple introduced podcasts into, into their architecture of iTunes, it seemed like Odeo had nowhere to go. And in fact, um, I've, I've got a story in the book of, of Biz, Biz Stone describing exactly what happened when they were all sent into little teams and as much as anything, an attempt to keep them busy. Um, but they were all sent into to little teams to try to come up with ideas to save the organization. And so Twitter's always had a fondness for the the idea of hack weeks because it seems to be when when worked well, they seem to be a moment to pause from the day job and actually enable the teams to focus their attention on something different, something productive. We've learned along the way that actually if you say to someone, it's a little like if you say to a child, can you draw me a picture? And the child will say, what of? And that what of, that restriction seems to be one of the most magical parts of it. So we've learned over time that whether it's restricting our hack week to ideas about geography or ideas about timeliness or ideas about how to make Twitter a safer place, the more that we place small restrictions on our creativity, it seems to lead to better ideas. Um, so we adore Hack Weeks. I think a lot of people might remember fondly the, the stories that Google always used to say about 20% time. And I guess the lesson of 20% time is that the idea of setting aside 20% of your working week seems like a lovely idea to, to, um, to try and foster innovation. But what you often discover, it's just impractical. Whereas what we tend to do at Twitter is pick a couple of weeks that maybe are those weeks that people aren't getting going. So maybe you pick the week um, week after Thanksgiving or the week after the the Christmas holidays, or you um, you pick a week just at the the uh, the start of summer where maybe people's energies are sort of sapping and they're just you know they're ready to start a new semester of work but they're, they're not really fully committed and so we often use those moments almost as bookends as way to to uh, i guess it catalyze a degree of success yes it definitely takes you out of boredom and and changes things up and makes you think differently you're talking about magic a lot and and you're talking about creating magic in your own life and you're you're such a proponent of teams I'm curious to get the the Bruce Daisley view of how leaders best create a magical team. Yeah, I think one of the things that increasingly we're beginning to discover is that great culture starts at the team level. It doesn't necessarily start at the company level. The This was my own fascination. It seems that human beings have have often got a capacity, a desire, an energy to bond with the people around them. But when we try to encourage that to be at a level of thousands of individuals, it seems to lose some of its its energy. Um, sometimes organizations can feel a little bit too big and we don't feel connected to them. So for, for me, I've been really fascinated then with, okay, so what can any team do? This is why my focus with this book and, you know, I've got my own podcast um, with this, the same title. My focus was um, what can any 
maybe manager do, or even just a member of a team do to improve their team dynamics. And here's what I discovered. I discovered that we sometimes forget that in our rush to believe that the future of work is about technology, we we sometimes forget that the most important way that people feel bonded to those around them, that they feel part of something, that they feel an affinity with others is not through technology, but through humanity. And so I was so taken with organizations I met that had set aside time for social meetings, that set aside time for things that might seem superfluous and and unnecessary, but times to connect as human beings, as individuals. And there's no shortage of evidence of how when humans um, when humans are at our best, it's when we feel connected to others. So I saw this wonderful piece of work that was looking into the long distance relationship relationships of unmarried couples. And I think there was around 40,000 couples living in across the US in different cities. We all know somewhat, some couple living this relationship. And they, the researchers wanted to understand what was the thing that kept some of those couples together and others didn't. They looked into the, the evidence. The evidence was unequivocal. Couples who stayed together when they weren't married, um, it was because they, the ones who phoned each other, telephoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. And we so often find ourselves now thinking, well, I'll just ping someone a message. I'll just drop them an SMS, a text. I'll just g- give them uh, a quick status update. And we forget that as human beings, we are far more social. Sometimes pixels and data just don't achieve that same degree of empathy, that same degree of connections as human beings actually sort of experiencing our raw selves can actually achieve. Absolutely true. And I think all of us are guilty of it. We're so busy. We just think, oh, I'll just send this off, et cetera. And those regular human connection points are critical. You talk about that. You say, you know, I think one of your goals through this book is to bring humanity back to the way we can community at work and online in both of your books. And, and, and you, you clearly do that and clearly have this focus on bringing joy. So, um, it's really terrific work. Well, I just want to thank you, Bruce. This is great. Uh, you have these two fantastic books, The Joy of Work and Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. And that same name podcast, as you mentioned, which is fantastic. And where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So um, the, the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com is where all this started, really, where my fascination for improving work started. I wanted to make the the culture of, of my team better. I wanted to inspire and motivate people who worked with me to do their best ever job. And I think my feeling when I set about this was thinking, why is there, why is there no, no one writing any of this stuff down? So the, the website... Um, has a lot of free resources. I've written a, a manifesto to improve work. I've, I've tried to share as much as I can because I've been on this journey of learning myself that I wanted to to impart the knowledge to to other people as well. So much information in your books, the the research, the studies. I know people just from listening to this can see that. And if you want to move your culture from what you said, I think I, I wrote down dead-eyed and demotivated to, to one that's inspired and motivated. Change your team, become a, a magical team, and 
all kinds of tips from monk mornings to actually taking your vacations, which is a good thing, or showers, because after hearing what you have to say and reading your research, we'll have the cleanest, cleanest, uh, sparkling clean listeners because everybody will take – how many showers did you say that was? I Six? mean, I can't recommend that as a safe and healthy <laughs> regime. But, um, yeah, he says he was taking six to eight. Six to eight showers a day. I hope uh, a good moisturizer so that you don't drop. <laughs> your partner would be wondering what on earth is going on. You're getting through That's so right. much shower gel here. What's happening? That's right. And depending on uh, on the water in your area, you may have uh, other other restrictions. But uh, all of these all of these hacks to really create a more joyful life, bring joy to your life, to your job, to your team. There's so many tips here. So, Bruce, just I just want to thank you for sharing some of these, and I encourage everybody to get this new book because it is just filled with so much information and ideas. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a, a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre, always aim higher.